0: everybody welcome to another episode of tales from a vet tech with me tabitha Cusera. today i am sharing a collab podcast episode i did with marissa martino of the pause and reward behavior consulting podcast so i hope you guys enjoy
1: Hello, listeners. I'm excited to have Tabitha Kusera on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much
0: for having me.
1: I'm so excited to have you. This has been a long time in the making.
0: Yes. Schedules are silly, you guys, and weather and other things are silly. They are.
1: <laughs> so Tabitha is a registered veterinary technician and certified positive reinforcement behavior consultant. And actually, also, you just recently got another...
0: I got my VTS and sorry, it's still really No, it's so exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. I got my vet tech specialty in behavior last week. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank
1: you. So we're going to be discussing the benefits of keeping behavioral data regarding your animal's emotional experience today. And the reason why I wanted to discuss this with you is because you do a lot of work for the amazing Fear Free Movement. So can you share a little bit about what the fear-free movement is with our listeners? Because I think this movement really is like the cornerstone or one of the cornerstones of this movement is really making sure that we are aware and keeping track of our animals, emotional experience. We want to be able to provide them with low stress experience as possible. So can you share with our listeners what the fear-free movement is?
0: Of course. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the Fair Free Movement. And to simplify it, it's all about addressing the emotional well-being of the animals we work with. In in vet med and shelter med, I know both of us have experiences with those. We usually, like in shelters, you may focus on food, water, shelter. And in vet med, we're focusing on make them feel better physically, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's Mm -hmm. how a lot of us were That's what's in our brains. And over the years, because we're always, we call it practicing vet med, because we're always improving, we realized that while we were helping animals physically, we were actually causing quite a lot of emotional trauma um, or issues. And as we both know, unfortunately, behavior is a very big concern. Many animals are euthanized, relinquished. There's a lot of human suffering associated with animal behavior. So... Thankfully, just like as human medicine is progressing, we're finally understanding that physical and mental health are essentially the same. Mm
1: -hmm. We're getting
0: there with animal medicine as well. And that's what Fear Free is all about. So helping them feel better physically, figuring out what's going on with that animal, like what disease process so we can treat, manage, prevent it, but also addressing their emotional well-being, whether it's doing all we can to reduce fear and stress associated with coming to the vet the vet procedures, but also addressing the fear, anxiety that that pet may even feel at home. So being able to talk to that client and be a resource of, oh, your animal has a behavior issue. That is nothing to be ashamed of. That's very normal. We're here to help. And starting that conversation because that is such a it's interesting because as a technician, like as I got into behavior, I realized how how little I was talking and asking I don't want to say the correct questions, but how little I was asking the correct questions um, to get (laughs) behavior histories, something simple as when was the last time your cat missed the litter box versus does your cat miss the litter box? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I can't tell you how many clients now, because I take my history just a little different where I'm like, oh, your dog or cat has been house-soiling for years. You've been here four times. You were ashamed. It never came up. Both the animal and you have been suffering and we could have helped this like so much sooner, right? So again, I'm getting really deep because it's it's something that I've, I've just noticed makes such a big difference. And Fear Free has certifications for shelters, for veterinary professionals, even groomers and trainers. But it also has resources for the general public through fearfreehappyhomes.com, which is just a lot of great resources about. Crate training or some basic body language. Cause we all Google stuff. It's okay, guys. We're all that person, but it's nice to have a website to go to where there's up to date science based. It's not just a blogger. It's a credentialed veterinary technician yeah. talking about a medical thing or a credentialed behavior consultant to help. And it's just an easy to read, easy digestible short article. So it's, it's really great. That's my brief summary of fear free. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I love that. And I think one of the things I love about Fear Free, I mean, there's a lot of things I love about it, but, um, Fear Free, if you go on their website and you do some digging, there are a lot of people contributing to this, right? Like, it's not like what you said, just like a blogger. And then they're like, this is my five steps to great training. Right. Which I'm not saying there's anything negative about right, that either. Right. It's just because that protocol could be really great. Um, but I love that Fear Free is really trying to collaborate with so many different professionals in so many different fields. Like you're talking about, like vet med, shelter med, right? Just like um, grooming, training, like the regular caregiving of your animal. They're bringing in so many different um, professionals to gather a variety of experience and perspectives and There's a lot of great names on that list. And so it's, it's, I love that it's this like big think tank of so many great professionals in our field. So, you know, the content is, is, is really good.
0: And that, yeah, that's one of my, probably my favorite things I've worked with a lot of organizations and they're all wonderful, but I started with fear-free as Mm -hmm. soon as it started. Cause of course I was a big fan of Sophia Yin and I was already doing a lot of low stress handling, um, back when fear-free first started. And as I've worked with them in a variety of different contexts, meeting other people that contribute, seeing, like you said, seeing people from various, because there are some pet writers on there who don't necessarily, they aren't behavior consultants, but writing is their skill set and, you know, interviewing behavior professionals or, or veterinary professionals. So it's just really cool to have so many voices. Yeah. Like you said, so many different experiences and voices and they keep, I feel like they keep adding and opening it up to different people, new people. So it's not essentially not that I don't love the classics because I do like because my mentors, a lot of them do things with Fear Free. But also I was up and coming and I was writing articles for Fear Free when I first started before having as many letters by my name. And that that matters. It's yeah, it's it's a special place for sure.
1: Yeah, I love that. So you you said the two words fear and anxiety, right? Yes. And so there are things, uh, there are scales that Fear Free has created that we're going to talk about. And I and the reason why we're bringing up the scales is because we're talking about on the podcast how we're going to be tracking behavioral data, right? And I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. The scales are a way for us to operationalize, right? Like how an animal's feeling in the shelter visit um, or the vet visit, right? So if I bring Peru to the vet, And, um, if I think that she looks mildly fearful, but then the vet tech says she looks moderately fearful. And then the vet says she looks significantly fearful. It's like, we don't, we're not speaking the same language, right? So what's cool about the scales is that it's trying to operationalize like what is low fear, anxiety, and stress. And we'll talk about that acronym in a moment. And then what's high fear, anxiety, and stress. So, um, Can you share a little bit more about that acronym and why those scales were created?
0: Yeah. So we use FAS a lot, which just stands for fear, anxiety, and stress. And there are, we're making them for more species as we grow, which I love. So right now Mm -hmm. there's a horse, bird, cat, dog. Mm -hmm. I mostly work with cats and dogs. So those are the ones that I utilize the most. But where they kind of came from, because I'm a big fan of describing behavior and avoiding labels, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it's so easy, especially, I mean, not just the general public, but even animal professionals. I'm sure I used to do it. I would say words like aggressive or that mm-hmm. word that triggers me fractious in cats, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which or for example, when I go to a shelter or a vet clinic and I see muzzle on a a document for like mm-hmm. their history, I tell them that that's helpful data that tells me the staff's afraid of the animal. It gives me Mm -hmm. no other information because if that dog was painful, it's appropriate for the, I don't want them to bite, but I'm just, you know, yeah. what was the context, what was going on? But also we understand that we're all on a time limit (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can't, for example, ears are back, eyes are dilated, tail is swishing away from body, uh, body is shifted back, not actively eating treats. We could write all of that. Mm-hmm. but realistically, that's not super plausible for everybody. And that's where these, because again, the, nothing's black and white, but these scales are really helpful because once you work with the shelter or your vet team or the general public, like the, the pet owner, to identify this is FAS1, this is FAS2 or 3, this is FAS4 or 5, mm-hmm. then you could write like from a m- animal welfare professional standpoint i could just write fas2 on arrival fas3 with blood draw yeah um so it's a lot everyone can do that everyone has time to do that so it's a mm-hmm. very realistic once you tr- get your staff on board with the bike because i think we shouldn't just be giving these and saying use these because i see that happen sometimes. oh my gosh
1: i see that happen all the time in sheltering we can talk about that
0: <laughs> yeah and then we're not really setting up everyone for success because if your FAS three is completely different than mine, as you could see, that that could be problematic. So we want to make sure staff trading and everyone's on the same page. But once that's there, it's yeah. just an amazing tool to not only do the best we can to minimize fear and stress, but help identify triggers and limit those triggers. But also, it can also help by to help kind of notice pain or other new medical issues as well, which we could talk more about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I love it. What you're talking about, you're saying like, you're not just talking about the behavior that you saw right? and you're not just saying words like aggressive and you're not just saying muzzle, right. Use a muzzle. It's like, well, well, what like use a muzzle during the whole exam or use a muzzle during the blood draw or, or, or what, right. What, what I love about what you said is that you're like during the blood draw FAS three, right during restraint FAS5 right like the, like you are identifying the antecedents or the or the context in which that particular behavior happens right and so it's not that like i i am identified as FAS3 and i live there right. right because we know that behavior and emotions are fluid and so things are going to change all the time and then i might make modifications to the environment for that animal and the FAS reduces right so I love that you're pointing out that it's really critical for us to be identifying what is happening prior to the behavior, not only identifying the behavior, but then what's happening before that.
0: And then we can also utilize that information to make not only it less stressful for the animal, but our jobs easier. Because, for Mm -hmm. example, if it obviously it can change, which is why handling is fun. It's a critical skill, but but when it comes to working with a cat let's say i'm the technician that goes in that day cuz it's not always the same person which is also why i think this is so crucial so to keep critical. track of mm-hmm. keep track of because three people may work with the same animal within a 2 week span and that's okay that's appropriate but we're we're setting staff up for success and that that pet caregiver for success because we may see FAS 1 or 0 to 1 with medial saphenous blood draw. So mm-hmm. the next time that cat or dog, well, we usually do a lateral in dogs, but that next time the cat needs blood work, we're most likely going to start with that l- least stressful phlebo- phlebotomy site versus being mm-hmm. like, let's draw from a jugular and let's try all this other all new stuff because we know that that works well for them. And let's say Let's say they were FAS zero to one on their blood draw at their last visit, four weeks pass or three months or six months, and they go into sternal. We gently move their legs back, the cats, and we attempt to draw the blood and the cats in FAS three or four. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. Something that gives me from a medical standpoint, is this cat painful in their back legs now? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's helping me identify because- Fear, stress are consequences of pain in many cases. So that can also be really helpful from a diagnostic standpoint. And I don't think all animal professionals realize that, but I think of the example with my cat where I am very aware, probably more (laughs) so than other people. And my cat was hissing at one of my other cats at a distance and it happened, that's normal occasionally, but it happened frequently. So I was like, I'm a paranoid vet tech behavior consultant. You're getting a full workup at the vet (laughs) Uh, because that's something is wrong. Um, And she's always an FAS zero to one throughout her visit, like her entire visit. And as soon as the vet approached her and began to examine her, she went into FAS four. Oh, wow. Me and the vet immediately stopped, sedated my cat. She had a slipped disc.
1: Wow. And I
0: cannot tell you how many of these stories I have,
1: mm-hmm. like
0: so many, but so, I, I, I can also see what commonly sometimes happens. Oh, that cat's just being a butthead or whatever yeah, artery I said, or I yeah. like to say, um, mm-hmm. there's a function to behavior. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so that's for dogs too, but I, I can't tell you how many stories I, that's just one of my cat's experiences, but so many of those stories that helps us help these animals sooner.
1: Yeah. And what you're talking about in terms of that, that like a medical concern contributing to behavior or in, in this situation, pain, um, we, we, we did a podcast with Ursa Akery over at Behavior Vets and they have now, I believe I'm going to totally botch this. So Behavior Vets, let me know, but, um, they, they have a pain specialist veterinarian on board now here in Colorado and I think the statistic is like 80% of their cases, their significant behavior cases, like 80%, there is some medical and or pain contributing to it. And so it's like, gosh, I can't, I can't ignore the fact that like, if I'm not feeling well, like, do I have a shorter fuse, right? Like all of this stuff is so important for us to keep track of. And so it's, I keep hearing the same thing that you just said is like, gosh, I have so many of these stories where there was something going on medically for my animal and their behavior was like, wow, like it was really either out of character or or like progressively getting worse or um, not getting better with intervention. Right. So, yeah, I just think that that's just, you know, a, a good plug and reminder to our listeners that like medical and behavior are they're intertwined.
0: Yeah. And I think if, if you're like a behavior consultant or a trainer, obviously we're not going to prescribe or diagnose, but you obviously, can share yeah. these observations, which is huge. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge part of this and note those observations, help that client track or un- understand body language, which you're probably already doing. And then instead of just saying, for example, I hear this a lot, so I'm sensitive, but my dog's just getting older. Age is not a disease. Um, if, mm-hmm. if your dog is not actively playing or your cat isn't playing, that's not that they're just old. It's most likely because they hurt. Um, mm-hmm. So there's ways that trainers and behavior consultants can help. And then also as a caregiver, I teach the ca- clients I work with how to identify these behavior changes to share with their vet, because vets are amazing, but they need your help yes. um, to, to identify some of these changes and once pain meds and things or treatments are prescribed, we need updates. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, before I was really into behavior and not as skilled, um, I used to <laughs> accept when I'd call a client and say, how's your pet doing? I used to accept fine. And that hurts yes. my heart Yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, because now I realized that client didn't, didn't know what pain looks like. Mm-hmm. So they weren't giving the pain meds. After some pretty severe surgeries, at the follow-up, you find out. And then I used to say, guys, again, we all grow. I'm sure 12 years ago, I was like, that client's not compliant. And to be fair, you should listen to um. your veterinarian. But real talk, they didn't feel their animals painful because they don't know what pain looks like yes so I'm like oh I was setting up everyone to fail kind of but
1: <laughs> I mean I well I mean you and I I appreciate that you're talking about you learn you grow there's many times where I've announced in this podcast where I'm like oh Marissa why? <laughs> but I, I I do think that um like I think it's tricky to see like I've watched I've re videos of my of my dog Sully that that passed and I've been like wow you are more painful even though i did a ton of intervention for him right but i'm like oh you are more painful than i actually could 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 allow myself emotionally to see i think like i'll never forget when i sent a video of him to my two closest friends and they were like yeah he's struggling and i was like it, it like really took them like somebody somebody else's eyes that to really say to me like Hey, he's a little bit more painful than I think you realize. And so, yeah, I do think, and and I'd like to consider myself a trained professional right. to notice these things. Right. So I could only imagine that, that our, our clients, you know, it's, it's just not part, like we honestly have to show them how to do this. Um, because it's, they, they, that's not why they have dogs or, or cats. They didn't sign up to like, be behavior geeks and track data, right? They, right. they signed up to have a companion. And sometimes we get lost in that relationship and forget to, to check in on these subtleties.
0: And I think it's hard also like real talk. Two of my cats went to the vet this morning and I'm sure you guys can imagine. I'm just so fun. Uh, what at so, the vet? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they, they both did great. Obviously I I do lots of things as so, and the vet clinic I, I, I work with does lots of things to minimize fear and stress, but I have six senior animals. Wait, yours or theirs? Oh, right. <laughs> I yeah. probably could use a drink after, but it's again, cause like you said, we're human guys. I'm a mess when it comes to my, especially with my, oh my God, knowledge, I am a fudging mess. So mm. I think, especially when it comes to hospice care or end-of-life palliative care, sometimes, I mean, not only is it hard for us and you should have support, and I hope you have support, but sometimes having a second eye on something is mm-hmm. is going to be definitely Critical. Yeah, super helpful. And I always tell my clients, because unfortunately – Similar to behavior vets, I see underlying medical issues in probably more than 60% of my cat and dog cases, but in my cat cases, whoa, it's, I feel like it's all of them. Um, Yes. Honestly. Um, So I'm the first person to tell them I'm noting these signs that can indicate pain. This is what it is. I have them take videos of their animal's gait and eating and drinking, Mm -hmm. which I tell them to do for their vet. I think that should be just part of the normal that exam two to three videos of your cat or dog acting normal, eating, mm-hmm. playing, and that should be shown. But the good Love and that. they get upset, they get upset because you have to realize, like, if you didn't know your animals in pain and you find out that they may be, that's hard. But then I turn it around and I'm like, but now that we've identified it, we can yeah. help your animal. And then they just and they get a giggle. And I was like, see, do and I am very high energy, but it like that's. That makes a big difference. Like taking my cats to the vet and doing full diagnostic and workup. I'm a mess. I'm not going to lie to yeah. you. I do it. But I'm like, what if they find something? I hate to say that, but it's, it's, yeah, it's hard. But then the sooner we find something, the sooner we can get help. I'm like, remember what you tell your clients, Tabitha. Yeah. Informations. <laughs> I always have yes. to remind myself.
1: Yes. I, and we're like, I love that you're bringing up that, you, that you're a mess too. And I, I hope that, um, uh, cause I'm also a mess and I, I want all of the trainers out there. I've heard so many trainers be like, gosh, I should, I should have noticed this, or I shouldn't need to ask for help. And I'm like, I'm here to say, ask for help. Like ask for, I I have amazing colleagues that I talk to all the time about my cases. I have a mentor, like ask for help. Like we are, we're human beings. Right. And I, I, I do want to say, as I'm thinking about, as you're bringing, um, your cats in, um, Peru is six months, my new puppy. She was going to puppy club, which is like this really great. Um, it's run by trainers at the humane society that I used to work at. And they, they, they have like six, Puppies Max. They split up the room. They do training. I take now. It gets like such a great program. I love it. And I dropped Peru off, and my good friend is managing it. And then there's another trainer there. And Tabitha, I couldn't leave. Like I was very concerned about Peru's behavior around other dogs, and she was like coming in a little bit strong, and like wasn't necessarily listening to some of the other dogs. Um, indications that they wanted space. And so I was like, really? <laughs> like I had to think like, Marissa, you have to go. They've got it. Right. And one of my friends turned to me and was like, yeah. So today Peru is bring your mom to daycare day and your mom's not leaving. It's <laughs> like, Marissa, she's okay. I'm like, are you sure? I'm like filming her like, which was such a great like now that i'm saying this out loud I, fi- I i took a video of her and i wound up watching it a few hours later and i'm like oh marissa wow she was actually listening and she was doing really well my anxiety was like an
0: emotional yeah
1: yes i was in such an like i was such an i was in like so worried about what she was going to do or not going to do and who she's going to become in seven months or whatever, right? Like I was like going down, down a rabbit hole, which I think is a plug. And I talk about this a lot on the podcast for taking video, 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 well, video. It's
0: funny. So the texts that work at the clinic, I, I, cause I worked with a lot of the vets and techs that work there. I take videos of every, they know, cause I teach for a living. Uh, uh-huh. So I take when they were drawing blood of my cat, whether again, because it's not about perfect. That's not real life. That's why yeah. I take videos and they know Tabitha's going to record. So I literally, <laughs> beca- from an educational standpoint, I record not because Tabitha wants to rewatch. I don't want to rewatch my cats getting the blood drawn or my dog. Um, yeah. Even though I, to me, I consider it like training. I'm probably a nerdy tech, but maybe I'll catch something that I wouldn't have caught in the moment. Like I do when I record my training sessions. So I kind of do that a little. Um, But there I've thankfully I have a very, cause that's a whole nother thing. Like I had to take my cat to the ER like three months ago and guys, I mean, I trust my colleagues. Like, I'm not going to say I don't, but you know, (laughs) it was, it was really, really, even if you do cooperative care and do what all you can to put a lot of trust in that, piggy bank, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. So I've learned how to advocate for my animals in a kind and professional manner in situations because most of the time I'm with them. But Mm -hmm. for example, if my cat is getting, my cat has an appointment with a cardiologist, I will not be there during the echo. So there are certain things I can do to set my cat up for success, which I will be doing and I will be communicating with the staff. So we're all on the same page, but Mm -hmm. I have to trust them. Yes. And that's a whole nother. I do. I'm not saying I don't. But guys, I also get it. (laughs) This is just normal feelings, you know, but Mm -hmm. thankfully, there are a lot of things in our control, like communicating with them, because even vets who are completely unaware of fear free, because you have to realize this, even in human medicine, guys, it's a pretty new concept, unfortunately, that, you know, we're going to address mental health. Mental health is physical health. So Sometimes even if your vet may not be as open to or aware of some of these techniques, you can still do quite a lot for your animal and then you can plant seeds for that vet and then you can even help be a positive person to that veterinarian. So then they are open to learning and doing these techniques to reduce fear and stress, not only for the animal, for you, but for them, too.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think it's so important. And, you know, we've had, there's a lot of resources out there on cooperative care, like you were talking about. And it's so important to be able to have these conversations with your veterinarian or your vet team just out of context. Right. Because I find that whenever uh, I'm like, Ooh, I didn't prepare for this and now I don't like what you're doing, but how do I tell you to stop doing what you're doing? Like, right. Like how do you, Like in, in my coaching program, we call this a designed alliance where you have a conversation with the client in terms of like how your engagement's going to go. And then like, let's say, um, like I might say to my client, like, um, so when I rub you the wrong way, how will I know, right? Like, um, will you tell me? Um, is there something that will happen within your body language, right? Um, can I count on you to share your experience with me, right? Like having these questions like, hey, when I notice that you do something with my dog that I'm uncomfortable with, like, how can I share that with you without offending you, right? Like, And these are like emotionally mature and grown up and hard conversations. 100%. I- for a lot of people to have and sometimes that means that maybe it's written in email format because that's what feels the, the most comfortable to you like for me I would prefer to have a conversation and a dialogue and just say okay listen this can be messy I want your job to be um really easy I want my dog's experience to be really good right so how can we both c- like co-create that um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. And I think this like advocating for your dog in these contexts or your cat is sort of a lifelong practice, especially cause like, yeah. we're not, we're not really taught to ask for what we need. And especially when there's, when there's this built in, like hierarchical, even though like, I don't think veterinarians look at themselves as they're higher up than the client. Right. But there is a built in, like, you're the professional and I am, I'm, I'm the client right? There is something there.
0: And I, I, a lot of what I do with my clients, because I tend to work with a lot of the vets that they have, that they're working with, but I may not be familiar with their vet, but I still teach them how to advocate for their animal and what Mm -hmm. that looks like. And how, again, kindly, professionally and responsibly and what to do if it ends up, if, again, this is not common, but if, it doesn't go well, and the person gets more upset, again, not likely to happen. But mm-hmm. I also tell them it's okay to get a second opinion. Totally. I mean, as a human, I advocate for animals on another level. But let's be honest, I have quite a lot of education, which counts for confidence. Now, advocating for myself in in medicine, I've gotten a lot better at it because I realized the importance of it. But I'm still, I mean, it's still a struggle for me. And sometimes I'll leave the doctor's visit like, why didn't I, why didn't I ask that? And Mm -hmm. be like, you should have asked that. Or because I'm having some chronic issues with my ankles where I've had to see three different people. And again, I understand that you're not going to know exactly what is wrong with me. It's about ruling things out. But advocating for yourself can be really challenging. So I can understand, especially if you don't have like my background, how advocating for your animal in that situation can be uncomfortable. So I love that suggestion that you mentioned where, Hey, let's talk about this prior Mm -hmm. to something happening because if it's a true emergency situation needs versus wants, which is for example, a nail trim is not a hundred percent needed in most to all cases. Obviously there's those rares, those rare situations, but so your vet can mention, "Oh, your dog's nails are a little long, but if you're if you notice that your dog just had an exam and vaccines and they're pacing, panting excessively, not actively taking treats, like the stress increased over the vet visit, mm-hmm. we don't need to do that nail trim right now and even if your vet isn't aware of needs versus wants, you can you can say, "He's a little stressed. Let's not worry about it right now." So then mm-hmm. your if that vet's not comfortable having that conversation, you're advocating for your animal and that vet's not going to be upset with you. So again, there's a lot of simple ways to do that. But I love the idea of talking to your vet ahead of time because I I love my veterinary professionals and I'm probably a little biased, but it's a big part. My animals are a huge part of my life and their care is a really huge part of their life. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't have kids, but I have friends with kids and they tell me how they have to advocate for their yeah. kids. And how difficult it can be to find a doctor that maybe doesn't just hold their kid down and poke them. And I'm not trying to be, it's just a very real thing. Mm -hmm. So, but there are ways you can advocate kindly and professionally. And that, that takes time and practice, like you mentioned, for sure.
1: Yeah. And I also, I love that you differentiate the needs versus wants and then, give that beautiful example of like the FAS right the fear anxiety and stress is increasing throughout the vet visit and that person goes yeah no thanks we'll prioritize that next session if your vet team persists right like you stated a you stated a boundary and then your vet team is like no i think we could get it done and they're not listening to your boundary right that might be something that you then address with them or find another vet team that will like i do yeah. i i do think that you know sometimes i find that when we're not used to when we're not fluent in the behavior of asking for what we need and then we finally muster up like the courage to do it and then it's sort of ignored gosh, that is such a punishing experience for the person that finally just went like, okay, I'm going to ask for what I need. I'm going to advocate for my dog. And so like, is there a way that, again, you can have that conversation before the situation so that, hey, it's really hard for me to ask for for, for what I need. So when I say no, that's what I mean. Or is that just not the right fit for you in terms of the type of dialogue or engagement that you want to have with your veterinarian? I just want, I'm not demonizing vets i'm saying oh
0: no i think i agree i think i tell my clients all the time and eh, you know there there's going to be even if it's not a malicious thing for example outdated medicine or, or something like that mm-hmm. it may be you're just not a good fit they communicate differently than you totally. and you don't feel comfortable like you have like i again it's very rare out of my you know many years of consulting i've only i've probably had less than 10 cases But there was one where the client met me, the dog had some chronic medical issues that I helped to uh, identify and help them find a vet because their dog was very fear aggressive. So Mm -hmm. a common thing and also had pain induced aggression. So we found a vet that's a better fit. And this is how I word it all the time. I say, Not everyone is skilled at handling fearful animals. That is a specific skill set. And it's not even an insult. You know, it's this fact. Yeah, this vet (laughs) is more skilled at handling fearful animals. So we're going to schedule them there. Again, it's not like I said, it's not an insult at all. We all have Mm -hmm. the things we're good at and the things the things we're not good at. But prior to her dog was legit held down. She kept telling her vet to stop. And he uh, wouldn't. And again, this is not common. And you know, they threw a nylon muzzle on this. Like it was just unfortunately a really, a really bad
1: experience. A
0: really bad experience. And I had to actually help a lot of my some of my clients ha- aren't haven't seen a vet in years due to the fear or stress of their animal, mm-hmm. even if the vet has nothing to do with it, uh, or the experience they had at the vet. So that's another reason why these scales are so important because. If the vet, because it also allows me, whether I'm working at a shelter or at at a vet clinic, I'm describing what FIS I'm seeing. And I'm describing how, what I'm doing and how it's going to decrease that. So it's also putting value in the veterinary professional because we're awesome. And I think sometimes (laughs) we aren't recognized. Um, But then also we're planting seeds for that client. Because let's say the client doesn't care about the fear anxiety because that's the other end, right? Yep, that is the other end. And You're the right. animal professional so by us planting those seeds and being like we're not just being difficult, I don't want you to just listen to me. That's why I'm explaining the why's and and we're like prior to this is plan A, plan B, plan C. This is a wellness visit. We'll we'll start this conversation before the visit even starts. Fluffy's due for blood work, vaccines and uh, an exam. We're going to we know that he's been a little anxious in the past, which I get anxious. I use a lot of human analogies like Mm -hmm. I get anxious at the doctor, too. And then this is what we're doing to help his experience be less stressful. And then we're like, we're going to start with the exam and the vaccines. And if he's his fear, anxiety and stress is still pretty low, we'll continue. But we can always just have him come back for a a shorter visit where we just again, we're planting that seed before Mm -hmm. we're and that. Even if the client, because sometimes I love my clients, but sometimes they're just like, get it done. Totally. They're not aware of what their animal's feeling. And I know, not just from a vet tech standpoint, from a behavior standpoint, if I get this done, it's a it's a want and not a need. And you're, good luck at the dog that just stops at the vet door and won't walk in. That dog is generalized the fear and stress or pain he felt at that vet, not just to the vet, not just to the exam room but to the exam or vet clinic door. And some dogs, when you turn down a certain street, you notice them pacing, panting in the mm-hmm. backseat. They've generalized that fear, you guys, all the way to the way to the vet, man. So yeah. it's, emotions are fun and cool. Um, but we can help educate clients too, to use that as an opportunity to be like, we are, we can get this done, but we now know, cause that's the other thing I identify that we used to do things this way. Cause I understand a lot of people still do. I did. So I identify that. And I say, we're always practicing medicine. And we know now that, yeah, I could sit on your dog and get their nails trimmed, But, and then I explain what they're feeling and, and most who all clients are like, Oh my gosh, I get it. And they're so mm-hmm. thankful. And then they feel compelled to advocate for their pet in the future. Like it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful thing. I love what
1: you're saying about this because it's this shared language between the client, the veterinarian, right? And it, it's going to be helpful in that in particular or that micro situation, but it's going to have impacts in a macro sense, right? Like it's, They might notice that their animal is in pain or experiencing FAS at home. They might be more willing to have the conversation with the team, right? So there's a lot of benefits there that I see, which is just so great.
0: From a bigger picture, because again, I think these small small situations, whether I'm doing a five-minute vaccine appointment with a foster or again, speaking to a client or even sometimes when I'm hiking outside um, and I see a dog and the way I communicate, I can say something and they now recognize that the ears back and whale eye means that dog is fearful. So we're going to have my kid not jump on him. And mm-hmm. how, what is that going to prevent? This is life changing stuff. Like, yeah, with which I'm sure as, as a trainer, we we see this all the time because half of my job, the first thing I do is teach them how to identify and body language and communicate with their animals. And in many cases, of course I do tons more, but there is a decrease in the unwanted behaviors immediately because that client is being more empathetic and compassionate towards their Mm -hmm. animal. And I, I, and again, even if you're, let's say you're an amazing dog trainer or a tech out there who feels alone and might be the only person doing this at your shelter or vet clinic. I've been there. I love you. Um, (laughs) keep it up but you're showing through example trust me I I, it didn't feel like it back then but now all these seeds I've seen grown like years later where people will randomly email me like I did that thing with the cat that you did that one time and it's so much easier and now I'm looking into blank 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 and I'm just like oh so even first off you're doing everything you can to reduce fear and stress for that animal which is you have that power but also you're showing and people notice even if they act like they don't You're, you're really changing the world. I'm getting super corny, but I, I really think. Yeah, no, but I,
1: I appreciate that you're talking about planting seeds because I do, especially in this profession, right? We, a lot of us do work alone and I think we don't know the impact that we make. And I think that, um, it's not, it's not an immediate reinforcer some of the time. Right. And that can be really hard. And so, I love that you bring up this idea of, you know, someone emails you a few years ago or like I ran into someone at, at the farmer's market. I think I worked with her twice. And she's like, oh my gosh, Bobby, Bobby, this is Marissa. She worked with our with our dog eight years ago. I'm like, who are you? Like, I don't even remember, <laughs> remember this client. And I had such an impact. Right. And so I I do think that we as professionals need to savor those moments, right? Because this can be really hard work. On so many levels. And so I love that you're bringing up, like, we might be planting seeds and not knowing our impact. And so when you do get to see or tangibly experience your impact, like, hold on to that because you might not be getting or experiencing or getting access to that impact all all the time.
0: Hundred and the the days you feel alone and, like, Mm -hmm. you're not making a difference or you have imposter syndrome because we're all human, guys, I, I... Think of the like, again, now there's hundreds of seeds being planted. Like I'm seeing so many of them grow, but there were like three to four years where I felt pretty, (laughs) pretty alone, uh, whether I was at my shelter or my vet clinic doing these things. Mm -hmm. And now I'm, I'm a little more aware because of my learning history that that's what happens. So I do it even more often, but it, you are making a difference. Like every time you interact, just like every time we interact with an animal, you're making a difference anytime you interact with a human and how you interact with animals in front of humans. I mean, you're making a difference, seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: we've we've talked about a lot of things here and I just want to pull out like tangible ways that clients can track data. Right. So we talked about videos. Yes. Right. So taking video of your animal. We also talked about the fear, anxiety, and stress scales, and we'll link to those in the show notes. That, that um, they're on um, the Fear Free website. There are scales for vet clinic, and then there are scales for animals in the shelter as well. Um, but you can use those for animals for for your animal in home. Um, there's also uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Ali and Emily over at Pet Harmony. Um, they always talk about, and I try to do this with, a, with a lot of my clients, some of my clients want to go like really geek forward. And some of them are like, make this as easy as possible, right. Where we're tracking, like, let's say I'm seeing a client for reactivity. Cause that's what, a lot of what I see. And so let's say, you know, um, we create an FAS scale, basically one through five based off of their dog, based off of the common behaviors we see in reactivity on leash or whatever the context is, right? So that that client could then score the walk or score when they saw a trigger during the walk or right. So that we've got that, like you were talking about earlier, we've got what the behavior looks like, but we also have the context in which the behavior happened or, you know, which includes the trigger as well. Um, what are some other ways that clients can track? Do we hit them all?
0: I think, yeah, the videos are a huge one. Um, part of every, that exam. And honestly, I would love just like as trainers, we have clients take tons of videos and I don't think that we realize how helpful that could be for veterinary professionals. Um, but also I think, let me see here. Understanding what your pet's normal is or baseline Mm -hmm. is, which is a huge thing. So as you start to identify body language, there's a lot of great body language resources out there. And of course, you're not going to be a pro at first. We all start somewhere. And it might be because the FAS scores do actually list specific things that you see along with a photo. So you might notice to start, you might notice a few displacement behaviors and you might notice that you're dog actually yawns 30 or 40 times a day now that you're looking, not Mm -hmm. counting specifically. Um, And that's something that you can share. And that knowing that that's your dog's baseline, maybe they might have some more generalized anxiety versus Mm -hmm. just anxious tour in a specific situation. So I think just doing what you can to learn body language, there's a lot of free, awesome resources where it might just be I see this, I see this in my dog or cat. This is when it happens. Identifying those triggers, of course, and minimizing them, sharing that information. Sometimes I think caregivers feel like alone or that they aren't an important part in the their animal's care. You guys, we need you in animal behavior and in animal medicine. We need you. So I always tell my clients to identify what is their animal's baseline? How often do they like to... What are their favorite things to do? Where are their favorite resting spots? Because um, then when I talk to clients after, they their brain starts thinking and they're like, actually, you're right. Shit, my cat hasn't been in her favorite resting spot in over mm-hmm. a year. And they put it together themselves.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: So then they can advocate for their animal. And then also, I'll definitely share with you in to put in the show notes some wonderful pain resources. Cause I think great identifying the, the basics of pain in your animals can be life-changing. So I'll share those so she can share those in the show notes. And then there's a lot of questionnaires and scores, and I know those are nerdy, but they're one page. So I know everyone's not going to keep a diary. I do have clients who have Senior animals or younger animals with chronic medical conditions. So we just have a cute little diary. It's just like a one page paper yep. with a happy face or a sad face. Uh, and or we have I create keys for my clients, like one to five. And I yeah. so kind of like the FAS scale, but I yeah, it might be are they doing their favorite things? Blah, 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 blah. Um, so there's a lot of those resources. So when when we say keep data, we're not saying write a book. Uh, there's easy ways to keep data by just quickly writing a number with an FAS score, identifying pain signs, and then re-evaluating after that animal has had pain meds. Like, are these working for this animal? Um, And just sharing those with your animal trainers and, and vet professionals.
1: Yeah, I love all that. Thank you. We will list all that in the show notes. Um, on this podcast, we talk a lot about, um, you'd utilizing this information to support ourselves as well. Right. And we've already alluded that like, it can be stressful, especially in a veterinary experience when we're bringing animals in with the learning history. That is not great. um, in that context, then therefore our learning history is not great in that context as well. But, um, thinking about this in, you know, how, like we also experience FAS, right? Fear, anxiety, and stress. And how might tracking our own behavioral data be beneficial?
0: I can go on and on about this because um, as a behavior professional, humans and animals actually learn pretty similarly. Um, Mm -hmm. So thankfully what I've learned about animal behavior has actually helped me a lot with people. And this is including my mental health journey. So um, I started to acknowledge some of the mental health symptoms that I might have been ignoring um, or just because, you know, all especially in vet med, guys, we're perfectionists. We think we're RoboCop. Um, we say things like, I'll get it done. I will "I can handle it. Like these are just which leads to lots of bad things like burnout, compassion fatigue. Um, so I would just like this is normal. I'm supposed to fall asleep on the couch at nine o'clock out of exhaustion. And I just literally normalized these things. Um, And then as I got more into behavior and kind of just, again, not even keeping data, just being aware, which is a huge first step, just being aware, I was like, hey, maybe I should seek out a mental health therapist (laughs) Um, or maybe I should ask for help um, and started identifying that it's not normal to feel like this uh, and being aware. And then I met a therapist. She's wonderful. We're a very good fit. Um, and I was diagnosed with depression. And I understand why my therapist came to that diagnosis. And then I started to read more books because I'm a super nerd. And she, sh- she gave me books to read. And then I started keeping data. So just, again, like of my mood and a few uh-huh. other things. And um, I started to share that with her. And through that, I got an accurate diagnosis where I'm bipolar and I am not ashamed at all. But yeah, since depression and bipolar often gets it often gets misdiagnosed for bipolar and SSRIs can actually make it with me. It did uh, SSRIs cause some agitation and some ADHD type symptoms, uh-huh. which I was very because I, I told her I was like, something's wrong. I can't focus. And I get that I'm all over the place and can do a million things at once. But this is not. What This I'm is like above and yeah. this is this is above your baseline. Is yeah, what, this is above is what my baseline. Saying, yeah. Yes. And I was really I mean, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was really scared. And I'm like, do I have this on top? Not that I'm self-diagnosing. We all do it. But I was like, do I also have that blah, blah. And then through because also it's really overwhelming, whether it's your animal or you. It's very easy to panic yeah. and self-diagnose and even maybe self-medicate, which I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying I see it happen a lot. Mm-hmm versus, okay, Tabitha, this is a lot. Take a step back. And that's when I started keeping data because I was like, I need my brain to not panic and not create these narratives and lots of unhealthy stuff. So yeah. I did that and I shared that with her and both of us were like, oh my gosh, duh, I'm bipolar. <laughs> like, And then it just made so much sense. And then yes. I got on appropriate medication, Because I used to go through really bad depression bouts of like not being able to function or move. And I used to just say it was exhaustion. It wasn't. (laughs) It was really serious depression. And I haven't had one of those scary bouts since I've been on appropriate meds. Oh, wow. That's amazing. This is like, guys, it's good stuff for our animals, but also also for us, for sure. Yeah.
1: I so appreciate you sharing that vulnerable story and normalizing that, right? Because I'm sure there's so many people out there that are, we have, like you said, a narrative about what's going on and that's what we're sharing to a professional. And that narrative might be filled with some truth, but it also might be filled with um, maybe not the whole truth. Right. And so I love that you were able to take what you know about your work with animals and go, wait, I need to, I need to keep data. And then through that data, you're able to support yourself. Like that was, a, and that's it was an amazing so, story. Both
0: of us were like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious now. But again, it wasn't me just saying I feel, cause guys, even though we can speak for ourselves, emotions are very complex. Yeah. Uh, Learning history is complex. Like you said, you may say something to your therapist, which you feel in the moment, but it can be more difficult, just like your vet, more difficult for them to diagnose based on that. So when you you have data, which is essentially somewhat a fact-based thing, and -hmm. you can look at it from a distance, it just brought the puzzle together. And now I'm like, I wish I would have done that sooner. So I want to share it with everybody because you don't have to suffer. Uh, and I suffered for a really long time and I thought it was just exhaustion and normal and, and none of these things were normal. And I know there's a lot of my colleagues out there who unfortunately have gone through similar things.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate that story. Cause yeah, I feel like our, I mean, I'll speak for myself only, but, um, I tend to do a lot of like all or nothing thinking so I'll be over here and then I'll be like I'll completely swing and be over here and then I'm like I don't really know it it, it is it this or is it that right and it could be there could be multiple things happening at once right there could be multiple truths that are true right and so being able to document that instead of just like our brain loves to compartmentalize yeah. everything. Like it's either this or that, or it's good or it's bad, or it's right or it's wrong. And so I love that, you know, it's, again, we're just keeping it. We're just observing and keeping track of data to really understand like the full picture and not just the all or nothing thoughts that our our, our brain wants to create in order to make this easy for us to compartmentalize. Yeah, so hundred thank you for sharing that. Of course where can people find you online?
0: So you can find me at chirps and chatter on Instagram and Facebook. I know I need to do more of the socials, but mental health guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you can also find me at chirpsandchatter.com, which is my behavior consulting businesses website. Awesome. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I always love talking to you. I need to talk to you more. <laughs> oh, thank you. I love talking to you too. What an awesome conversation. Body language and pain scores are two of my favorite things. And they are wonderful tools as animal professionals to make our jobs easier for ourselves. And of course, the patients and animals that we're working with happier. So hopefully you guys enjoyed. Be sure to check out the resources in the show notes. And I hope you're having a wonderful day.